good morning, C4 Church. It's a good morning, and it's a privilege to be able to uh, speak with you to, to you today and share the Word of God. It's the book of Ephesians. How exciting is that? Some of us have been waiting in anticipation. It happens to be one of my favorite books. It's powerful. It's life-changing. You do not want to miss this series. And today I'm going to be introducing it. I'm going to introduce the author, the people, some of the background of the book, and one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians. Have you ever had a wake-up call in your life? Like actually maybe there was a traumatic event Maybe it was a time where you went through a struggle, even intellectually, on something that you believed, and you had a shift in your thinking. Well, it happened to me. I had a wake-up call in my life through a series of a difficult journey in our family that went on for about seven years. You had three teenagers. Of course, that's traumatic enough for those of us who are parents. Um, And in those difficult teenage years, our children had committed their life to Jesus. It was very evident when they were children. We were pretty confident about our ability to parent and lead them into a fruitful life of being great Christians. And somehow thinking it was about us, our world fell apart. And we had three teenagers running from Jesus, running from the things that we thought they would hold dear And our dream for our family seemed to be crashing down. I just want to assure you that anything I tell about my children today, they've given me permission. So no worries on that. Um, So one night, I'm laying in bed. I hear the door open. And this crashing, ruckusy sound. And I'm like, oh my, like what is happening? And my oldest son, Justin, uh, six foot one, fairly tall young man, is carrying his brother over his shoulder. Now his brother is six foot two. And his brother was actually quite full of alcohol at the time and unconscious. So it's quite a picture to be carrying a six-foot-two man unconscious over your shoulder up the stairs. Well, the good mother that I am, I freaked out. Uh, What was happening? What on earth was going on? I mean, this was not a pretty scene. And uh, as I shared, this was one of several. So we, Curtis was full of, I guess it's called tequila, Tequila? Well, how do you say it? I can't even say it this morning. Like I've had, like I've had some already. Um, 40 ounces plus some, not a pretty picture. Alcohol poisoning. 911 was called. The body, uh, the boy was taken down to the hospital. And my husband arrived at the hospital. We hear this ruckus in the ER. It's like a movie, you know? I'm living someone else's life. And we go around, and this is our son, who, if you know a little bit about alcohol consumption, it usually makes you very uh, lethargic. It causes you to pass out. No, no. This boy was raging in this bed. The doctors and nurses looked at us, obviously, here come the loser parents. And they were, like, really, really perturbed. We cannot deal with this boy. They had strapped him down onto the stretcher to restrain him because of the power and force in which he was responding. That's not alcohol. My husband and I, after in our journey, had come to realize that things are not always as they seem. Was this just about teenagers, drugs, alcohol, parties? Was that what we were dealing with, or could something else possibly be going on? 
Well, we went around the curtain, trying to keep our heads up high to the nurses and doctors. Here come the loser parents. And we approached our son's bed, and honestly, we didn't recognize him. Something else was going on. Well, by this time, we were much more aware in our life. You see, we had lived in a bubble, but the bubble had been burst. So we asked the doctors and the nurses to leave, and we pulled the curtain shut. So Dean's on one side of my son, and I'm on the other side of my son. And Curtis is looking straight ahead in front of him. The look on his face was terrifying. He was crying out, stop laughing at me. Stop laughing at me. He wasn't looking at Dean or I. We were over here. I looked at my husband. He looked at me. We bowed our heads. And Dean simply prayed a very short prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you must leave. Just like that. Our son's face changed. He rested back in his bed. He came. He was completely... um, sober. He looked over at myself and my husband. He said, hey, mom. Hey, dad. What am I doing here? At the name of Jesus, my son was set free in that moment. Things are not always as they seem. You know, we get to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was written by the apostle Paul, and the apostle Paul had a wake-up call in his life. He realized, too, that things are not always as they seem. You see, the Apostle Paul was doing God's business. He traveled around. He was the one that was doing a favor for God as a good Pharisee. He was protecting what he felt was the truth to be protected, and he was actually persecuting Christians at the time. He gave permission for the killing of Stephen, and he was on his way to Damascus with permission from the chief priest to do exactly that, to persecute the Christians, to shut down this Jesus gospel, this the people of the way. And we go to Acts 9, verses 3 to 6, and we see Paul's wake-up call. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You see, Paul had an encounter with the living Christ. When you have an encounter with the living Christ, you get a wake-up call. One wrote about the Apostle Paul that in that very moment, that wake-up call, that encounter with Christ, that moment of fear, enlightenment, and regret... Saul understood that Jesus was indeed the true Messiah, that he, Saul, had been helped and murdered and imprisoned innocent people. Saul realized that despite his previous beliefs as a Pharisee, he now knew the truth about God and was obligated to obey him. You see, Saul of Tarsus was actually the perfect person to be qualified to be an evangelist of Christ. He was trained in Jewish culture, and the language, but he was brought up in Tarsus, which made him familiar with Greek language and culture as well. He was highly trained in Jewish theology, and he understood 
fully the Old Testament and would be able to connect the truth of the Old Testament with the gospel of Christ. Paul was a transformed man. He realized that things were not as they seemed, and he had a true encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. From a a man who was murdering Christians, he became one of the most influential and determined of all the apostles. He suffered brutal physical pain. He suffered persecution for the gospel and finally martyrdom. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Saul's wake-up call qualified him as an apostle. He witnessed the risen Christ, which fulfilled the qualification of an apostle, which we see in Acts 1, that only those who had seen the risen Christ could testify to his resurrection. He was not one of Jesus' disciples. But as this verse says, by the will of God, he was too made an apostle of Christ. Well, today we're going to look at a little more closely who Paul was, who the Ephesians was, but we're going to look at one major theme in the book of Ephesians that as John leads us through verse by verse in the next couple weeks and months into the Ephesians, you're going to see that one of the major themes of Ephesians is, in fact, that things are not always as they seem. That we do not just live in a physical, earthly realm, but in fact, we live in a spiritual realm that, that impacts us right here. That in fact, there are two kingdoms in conflict. That in fact, light and darkness, that in fact, Christ and Satan are in a real battle. Angels and demons, the reality of spiritual warfare. You see, Paul once served Satan. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was in, that he was presenting and defending the true God until he had an encounter with the true God through the, the living Christ himself. You know, one of the purposes that he wrote Ephesians to, uh, he wrote Ephesians for was to say to the people in Ephesus, stay awake. Keep awake. Be alert. Let's take a closer look into what was happening. How did he actually know the people of Ephesus? Well, you know, Paul on his third missionary journey, he had three of them, and on his third missionary journey, he actually spent three years in Ephesus. He was like a friend and really a pastor to the people at the church in Ephesus. Timothy was also a pastor at that church. He lived with them. Paul had fellowship. He was, had deep deep friendship with the people at Ephesus. He loved them. They prayed for him. They supported him. This was a letter that he had written to them when he was in prison, and he sent it to them to encourage them, to equip them, to say, press on in your understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Press on to know that you are empowered with the Holy Spirit, and that, that yes, in fact, spiritual warfare is real, but you are victorious. Ephesus was located in what is today Turkey, what was then Asia, and it was known for three things. It was a great city. It was known for its entertainment. It had a theater that sat 50,000 people. It had the largest known library of the, of the known world at that time, and it was known as a religious center. 
It had one of the top, the seven wonders of the world at that time were in Ephesus, and it was the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. It was essentially a religious center of Asia. You see, Ephesus drew tourists of all kinds. It drew worshipers, and they would come to this great wonder of the world, this temple of Artemis, to worship not the living God. In fact, when they came to the temple, it was also a place where, in a sense, this temple was like a giant bank. People came there to apply for loans. The temple was big business. It affected the economy of the whole city. The temple was essentially a highly successful institutionalized religion. This is the backdrop to which Paul speaks and presents the truth of the gospel. You see, you're going to learn in Ephesians that the church of Christ is not a building. The church of Christ is, in fact, a body. It is not an institution. It is a family, a living, breathing organism that is not a man-made idea. You see, when you challenge the church, you actually challenge the heart of God because the church is God's idea. It's not man-made. Some of you have been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by people, maybe leaders in the church. You've been disappointed. Well, I, I, I understand and acknowledge that pain, but here's the reality. The church is God's idea. The idea that we gather together as a body of believers is not man-made. It is not about this building or any other building. You see, the church being God's idea is truly a holy, living temple to reveal the glory of God, not through buildings, but through its members. In Ephesians, the contrast of this temple that was known to be four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, it was impressive. Yet the church being God's idea is the spirit of the living Christ resides in believers, those that choose to follow Jesus, ordinary, yet supernaturally equipped people like you and like me. We are the church. Isn't this amazing that in light of this holy structure in Ephesus that Paul says, you are the church, that you have the power of Christ in you, as we've already learned a few weeks ago, and we'll be reminded again that Jesus himself laid aside his deity, Philippians 2. He laid aside his deity And he became one of us. He became flesh. And he too did everything that he did on this earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that you and I get. That is the church. You and I are the church. It is not about this building. It is about the living spirit of God in our life. Are people impressed with us? Is the world impressed that they say, there goes the church of Jesus Christ? I can see the temple of God walking down the street. I work with a member of the body of Christ. Do you represent Christ? Do people see the church of Christ in you? In Acts 19, we see the backdrop that the, the people in Ephesus, spiritual warfare was not a new thing. Paul didn't have to go to them and say, well, you know, I just want you to know that there's a battle going on in the heavenlies and this no, no, no. Let's go back to Acts 19 and see what, hap- what was happening and what had taken place early on when the church of Ephesus was planted. Acts 19, verses 11 to 20, we read this story. 
God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cursed, were, were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Well, the seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, they were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Not a good day in deliverance ministry. (laughs) When this became known, listen to what God does with this. When this became known, the Jews and Greeks living in, in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held with high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery, they brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. It's a lot of money. In this way, in this way, through the revelation of the demonic, through the revelation of the power of Christ, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. C4, this is called corporate revival. You see, when the demonic is exposed because of the power of Jesus, people come alive. They get real about the power source that is in them, and revival takes place. The scriptures tell us right there that many came, that there was a number, a large number, that the word of Christ spread widely and grew in power, that they turned away from their false gods, that they surrendered everything to Christ. The reality of the demonic was not a new thing to the Ephesians. Their question was simply this, is Jesus more powerful? Well, My wake-up call was really, is Jesus more powerful? Is the enemy real? How much influence can the demonic have on me and my family and on believers? And is Jesus more powerful than that? Well, I told you about the story in the hospital. Well, after my son came back to his senses and his right mind was cleared, we were moved over to the other side of the ER because... Remember, they're trying to determine whether this boy has alcohol poisoning, which, by the way, he didn't, of course. And uh, Jesus just touched all of that. But meanwhile, we're waiting in the ER. It's the wee hours of the morning. Um, And the ER is really busy at that time. There's lots of people around. And Curtis begins to preach a sermon. It was fantastic. This boy who's running from Jesus, who, yes, the word of God had been planted in his heart from a very little child, He started preaching a sermon from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, presenting the gospel of Christ, quoting scriptures that had been sown in his heart from a young boy. He praised God from that hospital bed. And you can appreciate that as parents in that journey, our head is just going, what? What is going on here? But Jesus said, look, I'm going to show you what is in the heart of your son. 
Right now, you feel overwhelmed by darkness. You feel overwhelmed. You have seen the darkness. We saw the demonic. What happened to our son was just not simply to be explained away by the presence of this world, by sin and our flesh itself, but it was truly for us to understand the role of the demonic. And we saw the heart of our son. We saw the calling that God had in his life. And praise God, it's simply through his mercy, no credit to the parent, parents. That's pretty clear. This was a Jesus thing, that he restored my son, who is now walking with him and preparing as a minister of the gospel of Christ. When you realize that this is, there, that this is not all there is, you see differently. You see differently. I want to take you through a quick walk through the book of Ephesians so you can see this theme. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has what? Blessed us in where? The heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Our heavenly blessings are found where? They're found in the spiritual realm. You see, sometimes we get confused as Christians and we want blessings from God. We hear about prosperity gospel. We hear about, you know, give me the shiny car. I'm supposed to be wealthy and healthy and all this. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that spiritual blessings come from heaven. That the spiritual blessings that we have is we get to know God. Is that not the greatest spiritual blessing that we could possibly imagine? That we get to know God, that, that our blessings are of a heavenly realm, not an earthly realm, that our blessings are eternal, not temporal, that the theme throughout Ephesians is this is not all there is, that we are to live with a spiritual, heavenly, otherworldly thinking. Ephesians 1 verse 10 says, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Jesus said, pray that my kingdom would come. Pray that my will would be done. Pray that what happens in heaven would in fact happen on earth now in your time. God's ultimate plan is to bring oneness, to bring unity, to be realized that, and this was realized ultimately through Jesus himself coming from the heavens, going to the cross for us, and breaking the curse of death and sin, and, and inviting us to participate in eternal and heavenly blessings, which he holds them all. And he wants you as a believer to understand that he is giving them to you. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, it says, in verse 9 and 10, and to, this is God's mysterious plan. This verse gets me very excited. This is his plan. Do you ever want in on a secret? Here it is. Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. And this is God's mystery to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, who is the church? You, believer, through you. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Things are not always as 
they seem. God's mysterious plan was that the gospel was in fact for Jews and for Greeks, that Paul the apostle was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that the church was in fact the body of people filled with the Holy Spirit, and this was God's plan that you and I as believers, that we would reveal the mystery of God, that we would put on such a show, such a demonstration of God's power, that the world would know, oh, wait a minute, not just the world, who would know that Jesus is all victorious according to this verse? Rulers, unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who are these unseen rulers? Well, these are angels and these are demons, those that follow Christ, those that follow Satan. Imagine this, that God would choose us to demonstrate his power, his authority, his perfect plan to the spiritual realm. Is that not mind-blowing? Is that not a shift of reality in your life? That maybe what was happening in our family, maybe what's happening to you, is actually not about you. I know that's a hard thing to swallow. But once I swallowed that, you know what? Maybe this wasn't all about me and my pain, and my limited perspective, that maybe God had something bigger in mind for what was going on in our family. And I surrendered and submitted to that truth. Maybe, in fact, what was happening in our family and my kid's life was that God was putting on a show for the enemy himself and saying, really? You think you're going to overtake these kids? You think you're going to bring this family down? Well, I'm going to show myself all-powerful. I'm going to bring glory through this situation. The parents don't even have a clue yet what's coming. Nobody else has a clue. They're walking through this pain. I'm talking not overnight, people. Seven years, running kids, praying, pleading, limited perspective. But you know, God began to teach us, and he gave us a wake-up call. Ephesians 6, 12, here is the wake-up call for our struggle is not against, what? Flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realms. You do not have struggles in your life simply because of your flesh and blood. That may be your limited perspective, but today I tell you it is time to wake up to the reality that what is happening in your life that you are in a spiritual battle, whether you get it or not, you have an opportunity to engage, to wake up, to see things differently, and therefore to live differently. But you know what? You might be like me. You might live in what I call bubble land. Now, bubble land can be a good place to live for a little while. Let me explain to you my spiritual wake-up call, and because I'm a teacher... I like to draw pictures. Now, this will not be a James Ruddle experience. You see, James comes up here and does like Jesus faces and flips them upside down and we all go, oh. okay, that's not happening. But you can bring out your pencil and you could, if I can draw this picture, you can draw this picture too. And I really believe that this simple drawing is going to help you understand the power of the spirit that is within you, believer, 
The reality of the enemy, and that will answer the question, how much influence does the enemy actually have in a believer's life? So you're ready? You got your pencils ready? Open up your bulletin. You got blank spaces there. If you're not note takers, please become one. Because when you go to connect groups, hint, hint, you're going to be wanting to discuss what we've learned today and you need to draw it down. All right, so here's our drawing. I did understand this, and I've alluded to this already. Let's draw a circle with a broken line. Now, this circle represents the world. You see, the reality is we live in a broken world. That, in fact, we are told in Scripture that the waves of the world, the thinking of the world is not from God. And that we are not to love the world as believers. We are not to think like the world. But sometimes the things that happen in our life are because of a broken world. Were some of the things that were happening in my family and in my kids because we live in a broken world? Yes. I acknowledge that. It is difficult to live on this earth, isn't it? There's lots of pressures and we live in a broken world. But that's not all there is. We are told in Scripture that we are flesh that we have a sinful nature. So I want you to draw with me this lovely picture. Look at that cool marker. Wow, that's so neat. Okay, there we go. Do you know what that is? Okay, thank you. I'm so glad, so relieved. You're catching on. You're staying with me. All right, we'll put two little windows on our house. We'll put a door on our house. Yes, that is a house. We, I call this drawing, you are a house. Now, I didn't come up with it originally, Someone else did, but I've added, I've, I've loriized it, okay? So you are a house. You are, we are told in Scripture that we are flesh, that we have a sinful nature, and we are told that um, in James, actually, it says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. The reality of living on this earth in a broken world and the reality that we are flesh, that we have struggle in our sinful nature, that when we're tempted and lured away by our own sinful nature, that it, it, that's our brokenness in operating as fleshly people. Do I acknowledge that the things that were happening in our family and to our kids because of the flesh? Yes, I do. That because of our sinful nature, that we have struggle with sin in our life. But we are also told that we have three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now you see, the devil, we are told, shoots fiery arrows at us, that he attacks us. We are told in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert, be of sober mind. In other words, wake up. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, that verse is written to Christians. This truth is for those of you who belong to Jesus. You see, when you belong to Jesus, essentially what happens when we say yes to the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ is put over us. We get the blood of Jesus as a protection over us as a believer. When we belong to Jesus, we are told, 1 Corinthians 6.20, that we are bought with a price. We are owned by Jesus. I am not talking about ownership. When you say yes to Jesus, when you submit your house to Jesus, when you welcome Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you accept his cross and your forgiveness of sins, 
You are owned by Jesus. And your house, in a sense, is covered with his blood and protection. You know what else happens when you say yes to Jesus? You get the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to liken the Holy Spirit to the furnace in the house. So just draw, there's my furnace, I know it's very impressive, and let's just draw a flickering flame on our furnace. You get the furnace lit. You see, prior to knowing Jesus, you have no real life. You are told in Scripture that you are dead. But when you, you are spiritually dead, when you invite Jesus to take ownership of your house, of your life, you get the spirit of the living Christ. The Holy Spirit himself comes and resides in you, and the pilot light is lit. Does Jesus own your house? Do you have the Holy Spirit? That is where the power source and the life comes from. But we are told that when we get the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean just having the pilot light lit. Like, you know when you light your furnace, you light the pilot light, not a whole lot's happening in the house, right? You have to turn up the heat. And to be filled with the Spirit, we have to welcome and turn up the heat of the Spirit in our life. Now, how do you turn up the heat of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, you obey. You see, you can read the Bible all day long. You can know lots of things about God. Certainly, the Apostle Paul knew lots of things about God. But if you do not obey the Spirit of God, then you are doing what the Scripture says, quenching the Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. So a, a Christian that is being filled with the Spirit is the light, the life, the truth is being not only acknowledged in their head, but it's being obeyed and worked out in their life. A Christian who is quenching the Holy Spirit essentially is doing this. You see, when you quench the Spirit, you dim the light and the, of the power of the Spirit in your life. You, you walk in disobedience, you quench the Spirit. You don't listen to God, you quench the Spirit. Many believers will say, well, I don't know if I can hear from God. I haven't heard from God. I'm going to challenge you that if you cannot hear from God, there is a good possibility that you're quenching the Spirit in your life. Because as we invite the Spirit to fill us, we hear Him more clearly. But when Jesus tells me to obey Him and I choose not to, well, His power is quenched. It is dimmed in my life. And guess what I have learned? Jesus tells me to obey Him and I choose not to, and then I choose not to, and I choose not to. And then I'm over here and I'm going... Why can't I hear the Spirit of God? Well, frankly, He already told me what to do. I just need to obey it. I need to walk in step with the Spirit, as Scripture says. Another way that we grieve the Spirit is the reality of the demonic. We, in a sense, and if you're able to draw with me, just, you know, do your door so it looks like it's opening. Sorry, James, I'm making mockery of artists here right now. But anyway, the door is opening, okay? Can you everyone see that? Now, what happens when we open up the door, when we crack the door open to the enemy? 
Ephesians 4, 27 says this, do not give the devil an opportunity in the New American Standard. In the NIV, it says, do not give the devil a foothold. Do not crack the door open. Now, that word foothold, the Greek word for that word foothold is topaz. And this is what that word means. Listen very carefully. Do not give the devil a topaz in your life. Don't give him a place. Don't give him a territory. Don't give him a habitable space. Do not give him an opportunity. Do not give the devil power. Do not give the devil an occasion for acting. You see, believer, you, the enemy, can have access to you. If you choose to crack the door open to the enemy, if you make agreements with the enemy, if you choose to walk in sin, if you participate in things of the enemy, you are creating a space in your house for the enemy. You see, this is not about ownership. What I'm talking about is influence. The enemy doesn't own you. Jesus owns you, and you cannot kick God out of the house that he owns. Quote from John Thompson. (laughs) Jesus owns your house. You get the Holy Spirit. The power light is lit. You can't kick him out. But you can give room for the devil. And if you give room for the devil, it kind of looks like this. Crack open the door, you get some garbage in your house. Well, what likes garbage? Rats. So, like you see, as you allow sin in your life, you got garbage in there. One rat comes in and says, Hey, to his buddies, there's garbage over here. Come on. There's never just one rat. Rats always work in gangs. And in come some more rats. You know, at one time they're having a little gathering by your front door. Next thing you know, they're having chips and dip in the living room, they're cooking up dinner in the kitchen partying in the bedroom. All it takes is a foothold. Believer, all it takes. Maybe the access that you give him, maybe it isn't drugs, alcohols, and parties. Maybe it isn't occultic worship. Maybe it's slander. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's anger unforgiveness in your heart, you will not let that family member, that friend, that whoever hurt you, that leader at the church, you will not give forgiveness. So you have invited anger. And you know what the friend of anger is? Rage. And you will be welcoming the stronghold of the enemy in your life through the crack in the door. We're not talking about ownership. But we are certainly talking about influence. And the question is, how much influence? What privileges are you giving the enemy? What grounds are you giving the enemy? What access are you giving the enemy in your life? What right are you giving the enemy in your life? Well, here's Bubble Land. Let me tell you about Bubble Land. So you see, I didn't really understand this fully. I have a great upbringing, and I'm so thankful for my upbringing. I'm a really good Baptist girl. 
I married a good brethren boy. I went and studied at a good evangelical conservative school and have an undergrad in biblical studies. I love the word of God. I didn't get it because this was bubble land. You see, I knew about the Holy Spirit, but I thought the role of the Holy Spirit looked more like this. And if you draw a bubble around your house, this bubble essentially in my mind's eye was how I understood the role of the Holy Spirit. You see, I was taught two things, and maybe people here today were taught this as well. First, I was taught that the Holy Spirit and the demonic, God and Satan, could never be in the same place. I was assured that that was true, so I figured, well, if so, if you're owned by Jesus, that the enemy can't be in there. And then I started looking closely at Scripture and realizing the experiences we're having in our life. And I look at Genesis and I see the garden. Who was in the garden? Satan and God. When you see the story of Job and Satan walks right into the throne room of God, Satan and God were together. When you see Jesus in the, in the wilderness being tempted by who? Satan. Satan and Jesus were together in the wilderness. You see, God and Satan don't really have a problem being together. They do understand each other better than we do. And then we see this great story in Luke chapter 13 about a woman who is identified by Jesus himself as a daughter of Abraham. Now, Jesus would never call anyone a member of his family. He called her a daughter. He said, this woman has worshipped. She was under the word of God, the teaching of God, and was faithful to worship at the temple. And Jesus referred to her as a daughter. It says, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand straight. When Jesus saw her, he called over to her and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. And he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years, Jesus said. You see, Satan and God don't have a problem being in the same place. The spirit is grieved, but he doesn't leave. You cannot kick God of the house he owns. Here is my second belief, my second bubble land belief. You see, I was told don't give the enemy too much attention. I, I do notice that in churches that aren't talking about the Holy Spirit, if they're not talking about Satan, they're not talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, C4, we don't have any problem talking about the Holy Spirit, therefore we don't have a problem talking about the enemy either. You see, you can't talk about one without the other. But I was told, well, don't give the enemy too much attention, like something bad was going to happen if we did. Well, here's what the scripture says. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert. Be of sober mind, believer. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is not passive. This is wake up, believer. Ephesians 6, 10 says, take a stand against the enemy's schemes. And Ephesians 6, 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. You see, we are to be alert and aware. We are to be talking about the enemy in the light of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you realize the enemy can gain access to you, you live differently. You see, bubble land, I live like this. Here comes the enemy. 
hits the bubble, boing, off he goes. Can't really touch me. You see, I'm in a bubble. I'm protected and sealed by the Spirit, and I thought that meant the enemy can't get in. Enemy attacks me, boing, off he goes. That is bubble land. When you burst the bubble, then you begin to understand that the enemy can, in fact, have influence and access to you as a believer. The warning is, believers, spiritual warfare is real. You cannot live in a bubble land and and live as if the enemy cannot access you. Because then, guess what? You won't pray. Now you think, what? What do you mean? What does this have to do with prayer? Well, you see, there are three ways to engage in spiritual warfare. I've alluded to them. Let me point them out to you. The three ways to, to engage in battle. When, you, when the bubble is burst and you realize you are in a battle and the enemy can gain access to you, you wake up, don't you? It's like, i got to be on alert. What do I do? Number one, be filled with the Spirit. You see, if you're filled with the Spirit of God, watch what happens. This house gets so full of the Spirit, His truth, His light, His love, the work that He wants to do in you, there is no room for the enemy. You, believer, want to focus on and walk with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. To be drunk means to be under the influence. Do not be under the influence of wine, but be under the influence of the Spirit. Be filled. Now, that word be filled in that verse, the Greek word is pleru, and it means this, to make full, to fill up, to cause to abound. This is like a cup running over. This is not, you know, sometimes we think we become Christians, we get the Spirit, and it's one-stop shopping. I got Jesus, I got the Spirit, I'm good to go. This verse says, keep on being filled. The aorist tense of the verb is keep on being filled. Believer, every day acknowledge that you need the filling of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave, but you have to remember he's there. You have to say, today I choose to be filled with the Spirit. Today I choose to to say yes to the Spirit, to say no to the enemy, which leads me to the second way that you engage in warfare. Number one, be filled with the Spirit. Number two, shut the door, keep out the devil. Should we go into song? Would that be helpful? Right? Shut the door. Do not give the enemy access. Ephesians 4, 27 says, do not give the devil a what? A foothold? Don't make any space or place in your life. Do not give opportunity. Do not make agreements with him. Shut the door. And thirdly, be filled with the Spirit Shut the door and repent and confess. You see, if you have garbage in your house, people, the rats are partying. You're inviting the demonic itself to overtake your mind, your emotions, and your will, and even your body. That is the kind of influence the enemy can have on you. Jesus owns you, but if you welcome the demonic into your life, you need to clean your house out. I confess to you, because I was not as alert to this truth in my life, I, was, I really didn't practice the confession of sins like I should have. The Lord had mercy on me. But here's the truth. You must confess your sins. That is the way to deliverance. 
You want to get the enemy out of your life? You confess and you repent. And Scripture says when we confess our sins, he is able. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all rats. From, I mean, all unrighteousness. Right? Jesus said, when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, you pray daily. Give us our bread, daily bread, and deliver us from evil. Pray it daily because you have to stay on the alert. James 4 says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Be filled with the Spirit. Shut the door, right? Confess and repent your sins. That's how you resist the devil. And he will flee from you. He cannot stand the name of Jesus Christ. He cannot stand the blood of Jesus Christ. When my husband prayed a very simple prayer, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you must leave. Boom. The demonic, gone. Ushered out of the building. Had to go to the feet of Jesus. Come near to God. And he will come near to you Wash your hands, confession, you sinners. Purify your hearts, and you double-minded. Listen to repentance. This is repentance. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know when you've repented, when you grieve over sin. That is what repentance is. And you desire nothing but to turn the other way. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Believer, when you realize that this is not all there is, you will see differently. When you realize the enemy can actually gain access to you, you will live differently. Ephesians 6 10 to 13 says, this is then how you live. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Believer, get your armor on. You are on the front line of battle. Notice that he tells us in chapter 6, verse 18, and pray, pray, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. When you realize that things are not only as they seem, when you realize that you are on the front lines of battle, you pray differently. My husband and I learned to pray. We loved Jesus for many years. We knew about God. We sought to obey him, but we truly did not have the understanding of the access of the demonic. And when we realized that the battle that we were in, we got on our knees and we got on our faces and we prayed. You know, we wanted to pray against the friends, the drugs, the alcohol, the parties. But, you know, really, Jesus said, what? 
That's not what you pray about. I can take care of all that. That's just symptoms. I want you to pray about the spiritual battle that is going on with your children. I want you to start praying in the heavenlies for the will of God, what is happening, that that it would come to your family, that it would come to your children. And our prayers changed. I want you to watch a video that was taped almost exactly a year ago by this church. They asked us to share our testimony. I want you to listen in the video um, for two things. I want you to listen to the fact that the church came to us. We invited the church. And secondly, just how God taught us how to pray for our kids. So please watch and be blessed. We are the Heart Sorens, and um, Lori, Dean, and uh, we have three kids, Justin, Curtis, and Shan. Well, in the journey of our family, which we have highs and lows, and we definitely had a very, felt like a long season of lows, a good seven-year stretch of um, dealing with teenage and young adult aged children that were involved in um, the party scene, and uh, there were drugs and alcohol and some very dark, heavy metal music and, you know, just dealing with the reality of at times not knowing where they were. Um, at times where we, we at one point had to ask our oldest son to not live in our home. I mean, we never imagined we would be in that place and it was scary for us and the alcohol and parties and all of those behavioral things, but it was... There's a real different spirit in our kids, like things really changed in a place where we had a family, we had fun and laughter and got along good with our kids and then we felt this mockery and we felt that everything that we valued, our kids were really turning against. It was really painful to see. As, as parents, we questioned everything we, uh, we had done, we're doing. Um, you know, where had we gone wrong? What stuff did we expose them to or not expose them to that we should have? Um, so there was, there was a lot of doubt in our part and just even our ability to parent. We did. We, we sort of questioned everything about ourselves and we were really looking for help. And we ended up in a counselor's office, which is a good place to be. Um, and it was a very uh, light bulb moment for us. Uh, the counselor said to us that, that your kids are looking for you to answer one question. And that question is, do you really believe what you say you believe? And when he first said that, I thought, well, of course we do. I mean, of course our kids would know the answer to that question. It's obvious, like we're faithful to follow Jesus, we're living, you know, the Christian life, we're serving, we were worship leaders at our church, we were very involved, and of course they know we believe what we say we believe. But then at the core, that question became very personal. Because for me in that counselor's office, in that moment, I was at a place where I really was at a crisis of belief. Yes, in, a, in our need for just help, we uh, called out to the church family and uh, we just needed prayer. And Pastor John and the prayer team uh, came to our house and uh, it ended up being a very special night. 
The awakening for us that night was that it wasn't just about the surface things, the circumstances that we could see and that we were experiencing and feeling this oppression in our home and the mockery from our kids, but that there was something bigger going on here. And it was affirmed that night with the prayer team that this was, in fact, spiritual warfare. And this was something that, as believers, we believed in spiritual warfare, but really we were not equipped. We really did not have a good understanding of the extent of spiritual warfare and what would that require of us. So I would come out on this couch, you know, often three o'clock in the morning, um, being alerted to prayer, and I would pray and ask God for my family, pleading after God for my family. And it really was a journey of years of believing that God, I expected God to do something for our family. And I, in my prayer time, I had shifted my prayers to the point where I was praying, you know, really, this is about your namesake, God. This isn't about our, us anymore. is isn't about our reputation or whether we're great parents or the worst parents in the world. This is about your name on our family. This is, your name is at stake and you better go after it. And I remember being on this couch just pleading with God to fight for his name, to show and demonstrate not just to us, but to other people that, that he can and will do this. In our time, he would do a miracle, that he would go after our kids, and we needed some miracles. Things were not looking, you know, great. And I remember turning to the scriptures that night, and the Lord led me to Psalm 107. In Psalm 107, it clearly talks about each character in the psalm, and with each one it said, when they come to the end of themselves, and they cry out to me, I will hear them, and I will set them free. And that was it. July 2010, we agreed that's what we would pray for our kids. We would literally pray that God would bring them to the end of themselves. That's not a prayer a parent wants to pray, but it was the prayer that God required of us. So after we started praying that prayer from Psalm 107, six weeks later, we saw our first son literally run down to the altar and surrender his life to Jesus. Three months after that, our oldest son ran and surrendered himself to Jesus. And nine months later, our daughter returned to Jesus. We can surrender our kids to God. We believe God is big enough for our family and that he will finish what he started. So all glory to God for what he does. Here's a question for you. How will you respond today? How do you answer the question of ownership? Who owns your house? Who owns you? Have you had a wake-up call? Does Jesus truly own you? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ, which is the only way to God? Have you said yes to Jesus? Will you give him control of your life and invite the Holy Spirit? Secondly, maybe it's a question of influence. Who has the greater influence in you? Believer, have you opened the door and given the enemy access in your life? You have quenched the Spirit of God. 
Do you need to ask afresh for the filling of the Holy Spirit today? Are you ready to surrender every room? Will you confess and repent of sin and find deliverance and freedom? And parents, my word today to you, to those of you who love the prodigals, to those of you who are praying, I give you hope. I give you courage. I tell you that Jesus loves them even more than you're able to. I tell you that in the name of Jesus, you tell him to go after your kids and he will do it. You cannot do it. But you must surrender yourself, parents, to the full control of the Spirit in your life. You must be such so on display for Jesus in your home that your kids cannot resist him. Do not be discouraged. You let Jesus go after your children. And he loves to bring prodigals home. If you're a prodigal here today, it is time. Come home to Jesus. Your life will be changed. You will get the filling of the Spirit. You will be able to live a Christian life empowered. We are never told that we are to live it in our own strength. There's going to be pastors and elders today to lead you in prayer. I invite you to consider today to respond to the message that you heard. How will you respond? Ephesians has a powerful prayer, and I just close in praying this with you at this time. Would you stand with me? I pray that out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, that you would ha may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Jesus Christ. And to know this love, to know this love that it surpasses knowledge, that you may be actually filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask for or ever imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, be glory in C4 Church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.